Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Unsold out, we've been talking a lot about big ideas, solutions, and new ways of thinking that could help chip away at our housing crisis. This is about giving people what they're owed. Making sure that we address the most vulnerable Californians. We were the model that started here. Prefabrication has been born as a result of society's need. I really think it's time to be talking about reparations. But we wanted to end this series in a different way. We wanted to get to the messy, human part of housing, the part that tears us apart and brings us together. We've got something kind of special. We're bringing you a bonus episode made with our friends at StoryCorps. We're featuring stories that show how housing touches us all in different ways. Each one is a part of a bigger picture. Hear from people raised under one roof. Friendships formed by city hall rivalries. Classmates pulling back the curtain on their housing struggles. People who fought housing discrimination for half a century. And two homeless advocates who have very different ideas for solving the same problem. StoryCorps travels around the country in mobile booths, conducting interviews and sharing highlights in their public archive. These recordings are usually done with at least two people. So someone can bring their friend, their hero, their difficult uncle, and talk it out in the booth. Or in this case, over the phone or internet with recording devices. And a quick note, these are just tiny little snippets of the full interview. There's always a lot more to the story. I'm Aaron Baldessari. And I'm Molly Solomon. This is Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, a bonus episode. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. 
They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. We're kicking it off with that feeling of home and what it means to three sisters. So much of our, our culture is mutually dependent on our siblings and family. Like our well-being is really tied to each other's well-being. Yeah. So that's why a lot of the time we really stayed together and we didn't really move out. Like I remember grandma saying to me not to move too far from San Francisco. Hi, my name is Milati Afuamango. My name is Ovava Afuamango. Hi, I'm Elena Afuamango. Mileti, Ovava, and Elena all live in San Francisco. You know, we're first-generation um, Americans. Tongan American, Samoan American. Yeah. So, like, our parents were born um, in the um, islands. Right. Do you guys remember when we all moved into 14? Like, what was that like? Well, I definitely have a lot of warm memories about 14, 14 University Street. Um, that's the, mm. the home that we grew up in in San Francisco. So our parents separated. They got divorced. Um, my dad lost his house in, in San, San Mateo. And we all, at the same time, there were other things going on in um, with like our other aunt's home who they also lost their home. And so my, my grandmother's house, call it 14, we all ended up staying at that one house. And so literally we had one family in one room, another family in another room, one family in this room. I remember being jam packed in that house. <laughs> no one could sleep. I could not sleep. You could hear everything in that house too. You could tell like who was upstairs or who was downstairs, yeah. like by their footsteps. Oh, I, hear, I hear somebody. I hear somebody walking. I think I hear them. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely the way they walk. We'll be in one room, kind of like hanging out, and then our uncles and aunties will be in another room, like talking really loudly or playing instruments. The trumpet, Loyalty and his trumpet, good Lord. Um, I used to hate that thing. When we finally moved out on our own, it was really because we were forced to move out. Like, right. you know, it wasn't because that was something that we kind of wanted for ourselves and that, mm -hmm. you know, it was like, you have, you have no choice. You, mm -hmm. have to, you have to, you have to get out. Yeah. So it was basically last year, I would say, to 2019, uh, February, I think, or March, we lost our family home. There really was like a death in our family. Long story short, they lost the house to a number of different reasons, but they couldn't pay, make um, keep up with the payments. And then that forced all the different families, including me and Letty, to kind of look for our own place. Yep. Um, and me and Letty... We found a place here in Knob Hill. Um, it took a while to find this one, not to find this one, to put, but to find a place in general, because what we were looking for was something that was affordable. Yeah. Was interesting when we first moved here because I had never really been around so much white people. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, this is kind of strange. Like I've never <laughs> lived around so many white people before. Like, I wonder if there's anybody that looks like me or... Yeah. I also wanted to note that like our first, I guess our first week that we moved in to oh, yeah, our new house, the mm -hmm. new somebody home. called the cops on us, a neighbor. 
our family was helping us move. We had we had a truck outside, I think. I came to the door and I was like, okay, yes, can I help you? And he, the cop was like, uh, can I speak to the homeowner? And I was like, that's me. He was kind of flustered a little bit. I took it as racism. Why would you call, why would you call the cops on like new people? Like there's boxes, moving boxes, the truck. Obviously somebody's moving in. You just come knock on the door. You don't call the cops on us. That was like literally a third day. It was kind of a shock. But even in progressive San Francisco, shit like that happens. Do you think you guys would stay in in the city? Like I think I would stay. Now? Do you want to have kids? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm going to stay here for a while. Yeah. My whole family is here and I just feel comfortable here. And I know I can like go and move anywhere else, but this is, I feel like this is where I should be at now. Ovava and Mileti are still renting that place together in Knob Hill. Elena now lives in the Excelsior district in a home she purchased with Mileti. Some relationships grow in your childhood home, others grow at City Hall. We were friends, we were political rivals. We ran for supervisor at the same time. We're involved in San Francisco politics. And there are so many people who probably think we hate each other, which is not true. We're friends. <laughs> Sonia is the director of Yimbi Law, the legal arm of an advocacy organization that's fighting to increase the number of homes in the state so that more people can afford to live here. Christine was a planning commissioner for 14 years, and she was the San Francisco director of SPUR, an urban planning think tank. It advocates for dense, walkable cities that have ample public transit. The two met at City Hall, and they didn't exactly hit it off right away. You were on the planning commission, and I went to planning commission meetings. And I just think the funniest thing about it is that you're like, yeah, Sonia yelled at us and said we were stupid. You had been sitting in the meeting for half of the meeting, so you had already been there. And I remember looking at you, you were wearing like uh, <laughs> some psychedelic print leggings. And I remember thinking, did you just come from Burning Man? Like, what? And someone told you to come sit in this room? Like, what is happening? Who are you? But you came up and said something about, like, we're all stupid. Like, we are not taking our opportunities to build more housing. Like, that's what we need. Like, whenever people come up and they give their all their dumb reasons about, like, why they can't build more or why they can't identify their neighborhoods, like, they're all stupid. And we are dumb if we believe all of that. We should just be building more housing. And in my mind, I was, like, clapping. I was like, yes. That is what I have been trying to say, right. just with words with more syllables. Like, that is what I've been yeah, that doing. Makes sense. I was like, oh my God, she's great. I don't like being called stupid in public, but she's great. <laughs> um, I was always excited to hear what you were going to say. And I noticed after a while, I think it was maybe after a couple months, that, and we met every Thursday for people who are listening for posterity. Um, you showed up with more and more people. Like the first time it was like three of you. And then next time it was like five and then 10. And then the whole back row was folks that had come with you. And it was clear that you were all together. <laughs> um, and so I just thought that was so impressive because I, I couldn't get people to follow me to an ice cream shop and sitting there the whole time for our whole like six, eight, 10 hour meetings, like the whole time. We were kind of like opposites, Thank but you. I was like- Yeah, you were always the most refreshing, you know, voice on there. Like we could rely on you saying something that was really what we were wanting to hear. I guess, what was it like to like be pro housing when it felt like the general public was like never going to be supporting 
of that, you know, but here you are on the commission. Like, was it lonely or it was lonely. It was a little frustrating. I mean, there were definitely times where I questioned myself. Like I almost, there were a few times where I thought to myself, am am I crazy? Am I wrong? Am I just, you know, this girl who grew up in Manhattan. And so I'm just so used to always being around people and density and thinking that that's great, that really I'm not seeing the other side of this picture. But then I realized, (laughs) nope, I'm right. People need places to live. And if we have fewer places to live, then people don't have places to live. It's very easy. (laughs) And so every time we have an opportunity to, we need to be adding units, not subtracting them. You know, whenever we talk about these major projects, we need to be talking about how to make them the best we can and how are we going to make these truly livable neighborhoods so that that becomes what people think about San Francisco and not necessarily like a beautiful Victorian. Sonia now spends her time suing cities over zoning laws that she says illegally restrict new housing. Christine is still thinking about housing, just in a different zip code. She's now based in Colorado. You can't talk about housing without talking about people who are homeless. It's been a huge issue in San Francisco for a long time. The most recent survey found more than 8,000 people are experiencing homelessness just in San Francisco. There are a lot of people who want to help change that, even though the problem seems so daunting. We're going to hear from two people who spend a lot of time doing outreach and advocacy in San Francisco. They both believe we should be doing more for our homeless residents, but they have different views on what that should look like. He wants more focus on addiction and drug use. And she wants more focus on policy change. But in conversation, they often found themselves agreeing. Meet Kristen Evans, she's a small business owner, and Thomas Wolf, a case manager at the Salvation Army. Look at how income inequality has really, you know, gotten worse in our lifetime because we're about the same age. And, and you and I remember what it was like growing up in the 70s and the 80s. It was very different um, in terms of affordability. And uh, that income inequality that's happened over time it is, is in part a creation, a societal creation that has been, you know, uh, created through our political system. San Francisco has uh, a crazy number of billionaires. And so it's really not a lack of wealth or resources. It's a matter of who's controlling those resources. And I actually agree with that. Um, I think one of the things for me, and not to just dive in another direction, but one of the things that seems to have complicated that issue with inequality uh, is the fact that once people end up on the street, that they seem to be turning to uh, illicit drug use. And I think that that's complicating the issue of then turning around and getting that person back off the street. I consider myself like a recovery advocate because I was homeless at one point and addicted to drugs, and now I'm in recovery. And I keep screaming at the top of my lungs on Twitter and to anybody that will listen that the two are intertwined. And uh, I think they're intertwined more than what people realize and that more than what most politicians want to acknowledge. For me, drugs is, has to be part of the conversation. I agree with you on that. But I also think that homelessness you know, is at root cause about lack of affordable housing, right? right? Because a lot of folks that do have addiction and substance abuse you know, also have, are on a fixed income. When I go out and I advocate, I do 
tend to focus my advocacy towards the drug crisis slash homeless crisis on the street. So I, it's important that we do recognize that there are families, there are young people or people of color that are struggling with poverty that are on the cusp of being homelessness. And then we have a whole group of people like me that are talking about the drug crisis and how that affects homelessness. But I also think that, that you and I really aren't that far apart because I think we both agree that the system has to change. So many of the people who work on housing issues agree with that. The system needs to change. And that's what motivated them to get involved. My name is John Gamboa. I'm 78 and I'm in the Berkeley Hills in the little office in my in my home. And my, my name is Bruce Kwan Jr. I'm 74 years old. I am located in Oakland, California. John and Bruce are housing rights advocates who've spent a lifetime fighting housing discrimination like redlining, policies that have contributed to a huge wealth gap between white families and people of color. And they're fighting to close that gap. And Bruce, what led you to come back and be an activist in, in your later years like you're doing now? Well, John, it was you, actually. Uh, because uh, not my fault. No, it's your fault. <laughs> so I was in. I came back uh, to do do work in Oakland, Chinatown, which my great grandfather had helped found after the earthquake. Uh, and then I got a phone call. John Gamboa has come out of retirement uh, because of the 2008 foreclosure debacle, uh, and he is all pissed off, and he is concerned about the loss of wealth accumulation uh, by the people of color uh, who had were able to purchase homes but lost it all in the foreclosures. From the time that I was born, uh, I lived with my grandparents uh, after my father got out of the army in 1946. Now, um, the problem with getting out in 1946 was that he was Chinese and uh, he wanted to look for a house near where he worked. And that was up in Montclair, up in the Oakland Hills. Uh, at that time, Montclair was all white. The real estate agents were afraid to uh, be involved in showing a house to minorities because then they would be blacklisted. So my parents eventually were able to get a house uh, through my father's army buddy from the uh, army reserves who bought the house and then transferred the house title to my parents. When we moved up to Montclair, uh, we immediately uh, were targeted for uh, racial epithets. I ended up going to segregated high school and a segregated junior high school because the school board uh, in the late 50s to prevent white flight from Oakland decided they need to try and create uh, segregated schools. And that's why I became uh, a civil rights person because uh, I was pretty much outraged at what happened. What motivated you to become so involved with uh, issues of uh, our communities as well as the housing issue in particular? 
working in the corporate world, I came to the conclusion that laws and demonstrations are they're really important on it. But another avenue of making change is through the capital system, through wealth, through using our buying power. And that's how we started the Green Lining uh, Institute. The Green Lining Institute was the, the antidote to redlining. And we were able to create, you know, a little over one and a half to $2 billion in commitments from financial institutions into, into the communities of color by working together, Latinos, Black, and Asian. But that's where we're at right in the middle right now and trying to, to close that wealth gap. These days, John's executive director of the Greenlining Institute, which focuses on racial and economic justice in housing. And they both work with the 200, a state coalition focused on increasing homeownership for people of color in California. Housing in the Bay Area is so complex. You know, you have people being pushed out and then you have young people struggling to find housing. And then you have the homeless population this is Bronte Saratsky. She's a college student. I am 22 years old. I'm currently residing in Los Angeles, California. Bronte has written about how hard it is for students to find housing in San Francisco, especially now during the pandemic when so many dorms have closed. She headed home to LA because of the pandemic. For this interview, she called up her friend. My friend Eddie, who I know. Eddie Weehan stayed in the Bay for a while, but eventually moved back home to Southern California. I live in Anaheim, California. I am 24 years old. I met Bronte at San Francisco State. Eddie and Bronte had the same major. And we've had a bunch of classes together. What is it like being home right now, Bronte? It's hard. I, I miss being in SF, but with my living situation, with my apartment, it just wasn't great. How many roommates did you have? Right after my freshman year, I moved into a two-bedroom apartment and I lived with six other people. I never thought that was that crazy until I told other people about it. When you live in such a small, cramped space, I think it really does take like a toll on your mental health. Like in San Francisco, my living room didn't have windows and there was like no circulation in the apartment. And I know you stayed in the Bay Area. Uh, why did you decide to stay? I wanted to stay because I paid for a year lease, but it was really tough buying food. So I would rely on Gator Groceries at San Francisco State. I, I didn't know that you were like struggling to get meals. I had one job and I got furloughed, so I wasn't able to work while I was up in San Francisco. Fortunately, my godmother um, was very kind and she sent me a care package um, of food. I was very grateful. You know, we're always told like in college we'll be working, but I think in San Francisco, like just working one job isn't enough. I was like shocked with how many jobs you had in order to pay for rent. I remember... You told me you were babysitting, you, you worked at Java. Oh, I forgot I babysat. Yes. I had three jobs. You had three jobs, and I really didn't know how you were able to do it because you really sacrificed in order to pay to, to go to school. I really wonder like, what college students do to be able to live in the city, especially with COVID now, when a lot of people are unemployed. When I lived in the dorms, my 
apartment that I shared with four other girls. I think we each paid like twelve hundred a month. What do you, what about you? After I left Fullerton College to transfer up to San Francisco State, it was my first time moving out by myself. It was intimidating when they were asking for first and last month's rent. I kind of found that confusing because I didn't know why they needed last month's rent. <laughs> I feel like you're competing on top of that with people in the tech industry or like young professionals, couples. People want those over college students. Even when you're looking for a place, the landlords are like, okay, what's your credit score? Like They want to know all this stuff on you. And when you're in your early 20s, you don't have all these things that are required. Eddie, you're still in school, right? You have one more semester? Yes, I'll be graduating this fall. Yay! I actually considered moving back to San Francisco for the fall semester, but it would be a waste of money for me to go back because I would have to take out more loans. I would just be in a lot of debt. I wish that there was a like a warning on what you're going to face when you try to live in San Francisco. When my friend, she told me about the students that were living in vans and I didn't believe it until I saw it once I actually got to SF State. It really hurt me. I couldn't believe the conditions that students are living in. I, I, I wish like there was some more that schools could do. They know that they're living in these vehicles when I talked to someone at SF State, they knew, but it's such a bigger issue. The city still hasn't really figured out how to handle it. I feel like San Francisco, everyone wants to live there because it's got this reputation, gets super liberal, it has places like the Castro and it's very accepting. But then when it comes to the price, it's not. Um, I'm glad we got to do this interview. Thank you so much, Bronte, for letting me speak about my experience in San Francisco. Thank you to everyone who participated in this special episode. And thank you for listening to Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America. Join us on November 17th for a virtual panel event. You can get updates on our website at www.kqed.org slash podcasts slash sold out. And to add to the conversation, send us a message. Find us on Twitter. I'm at Solomon Out. That's at Solomon Out. And I'm at E underscore Baldi. That's at E underscore B-A-L-D-I. Please keep sharing the podcast. You can find Sold Out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or your favorite listening app. And be sure to subscribe or follow the show when you're there so you won't miss any future episodes that may come out after this. Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America is a production of KQED Public Media. This episode was produced by Kiana Mogadam and edited by Jessica Plachek, with production help from Erica Aguilar and Vita Kong. Big thank you to Danielle Anderson at StoryCorps and the entire StoryCorps production team. Erica Kelly is our editor, sound engineering, and original music by Rob Spate. And our editorial leadership team at KQED includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Erin Baldessari. And I'm Molly Solomon.